All right, I'm here today with Dr. Kevin Ellis. Dr. Ellis is the State Board of Education member from District 9. He represents 31 counties and 1.7 million constituents. That's a lot of folks, Kevin. Welcome. Yeah, it's a lot of folks. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for having me here and excited to have a little conversation. Yeah. So you and I kind of got to know each other when we were on the Lufkin School Board together, ran at the same time. Uh, I think we did some good work together there, went through the, the Pretty Foundation uh, schooling. And uh, tell me about your time, how you viewed it on the Lufkin School Board. Yeah, as, as you mentioned there, you know, you and I ran as opponents. We really honestly didn't probably know each other that, that very well. And... Um, we got elected, we figured out we had kind of a kindred spirit of, of what we thought needed to be done in the, in the school district. And I think we did some really good work. Um, we had some good training that we started with the CRSS um, Foundation um, that were able to bring that home and do some positive changes to the district. A uh, year after we got on the board, uh, Dr. Goffney came along and, and some more exciting things then, and the district continues to, to improve over time. Yeah, I think I think that was an exciting time. We had a we had a good most mix of folks. We got that high end training through CRSS, and um, I felt really good about what we were doing. And I think that's carried over. So then there was going to be a, a resignation from the SBOE State Board of Education. And how did you how did you decide that that was something you were interested? in? Let me back up even a little bit and just talk about how I got involved in, in education. Um, you know, the, there was a uh, quality schools task force that was formed probably about 10 years ago when Lufkin was ready to form a bond or uh, go through a bond package. Mr. Knight was putting that on. And um, they were getting community members together. And they sent out postcards to have about 40 or 50 community members meet and discuss this. Well, my wife got a postcard. And uh, she looked at it and sat on the counter and she said, I don't want to go to this, you go to it. And uh, so I showed up at the uh, community schools task force meeting and really got interested in how the school process works and all the different facets. So got involved with that, um, showed some interest, and I was then appointed to the uh, triethnic committee on the school district. And next thing you know, there was an opening on the school board and ran for that. Like you talked about, you and I came on together. So I served about four and a half years, and um, the SBOE member for our district, a gentleman named Thomas Ratliff, um, his father was former lieutenant governor, Bill Ratliff, was serving on the board, and he had decided that he was going to run, then he decided he wasn't going to run, then he decided he was going to run, and then he decided he wasn't going to run. He had kind of gone back and forth. Well, I got a phone call. I can remember the day. It was December 3rd that he had finally decided not to run, well, the problem was the filing deadline was December 10th. I literally had about a week to decide whether I was going to run or not. And so um, put my name in. Actually, when I sent in my application, um, no one else had signed up yet. While my application was in the mail, we had a couple other people sign up, one gentleman named Hank Herring and another lady named Mary Lou Bruner. And uh, that's when kind of all the fun and excitement started. Um, for those who paid attention to that, uh, Mary Lou Bruner, my opponent, was the one who said that Obama was a gay male prostitute in his 20s to pay for his drug habit, and the stories went on and on from there. I had joked that I had to uh, sat down with a friend and said, okay, if I'm going to run for the State Board of Education, how am I even going to let people know that I'm running, what the situation is, right. and uh, her... Uh, her uh, um, Post really took care of that. Next thing you know, we were in the New York Times and um, 
WFAA up in uh, ABC up in Dallas had us on a newscast, and so um, got pretty interesting. But that's how uh, I ended up running for the State Board of Education. Yeah, so that race was interesting. Um, to say that Mary Lou Bruner is a character is giving her a lot of credit, and that that was an interesting race, and, and um, you know, prayers answered that you won, because I would hate to think where we would be if you didn't win that race. You know, it was a whole lot closer than I would have hoped. Um, because it was all last minute, we all signed up last minute, we didn't get our message out at first, and in the general election, um, if you because there was three of us, you had to get fifty percent to win outright, and she had forty-eight and a half percent. So, she was only a percent and a half away from winning the election, but had finished eighteen points ahead of me. In fact, I had a, a gentleman from the Austin American Statesman call me thereafter and said, "Are you even going to consider running in the runoff, or have you pretty much just given up?" Basically, the fact that you lost by eighteen points. I said, "No, I'm still planning on." On running, and anyways, long story short, three months later we had the runoff and uh, ended up I beat her by 18 points, and so right. uh, quite a quite a difference. Finally, I think the word uh, got out, and 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 um, it didn't take much to get it out because she was uh, pretty prolific with some of her uh, questionable, shall we say, posts on social media and statements. Um, and then, if I remember correctly, she made an appearance. And uh, at a superintendent uh, function, and Dr. Goffney actually taped it, you know, just taped the function on her iPhone, and, and I think that was posted, and so that was a wild ride. So tell me this, <laughs> after all of that, you know, you know, the crazy start, the runoff, you win by 18 points, what do you think you learned most from running that race? You know that you you've. It's not easy to get your message out. Um, you mentioned in the intro that I've got 31 counties and 1.7 million uh, constituents, and I would drive. You know, I could drive three or almost four hours away and still be in my district. And I'd go through a little town and think, my goodness, I've got to let people in this town know who I am and what I'm doing. And I kind of joked, I think there's people at the end of my block who don't know who I am or what I'm doing. It's just not a very high profile job or position, but I think it's an extremely important position. And that's one thing I've tried to learn through the process is just how to communicate to the public out there on, on what's happening. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there's another way to do it, but electronically, social media, um, hopefully podcast like this one, and just to kind of tell the story. Right. So let's back up because, you know, I'm not even sure I know all this. You didn't grow up a, a native Texan. You you uh, you grew up in the Great Northwest, as I understand it. Is that right? No, actually, I did. I was born in in the most Texan city of all. I was born in Texas City, Texas. Oh, I, I got didn't know that. Texas in my birthplace twice. All right. Um, so when I was thirteen, my mother remarried uh, and she moved up to Seattle. So I lived in in the Houston area till till thirteen. Um, moved up with my mother to Seattle in eighth grade and went through high school and undergrad up there, and then back to Houston for chiropractic college, um, was there, and I met my wife, Shelly Cox Ellis, and uh, her parents were from here, grew up in, in Lufkin. He had the muffler shop for a bunch of years, and yeah. her mom had the clothes rack, and um, we were living in Houston, and everybody thought that she brought me back up here, but truth be told, told I brought her back kicking and screaming she had made it out of Lufkin worked for a big law firm down in Houston right I remember that and um, you know I had we had the kids twins Katie and Jacob and I can tell you exactly what stop sign I was at when this thought had never crossed my mind until this point was 
came to a stop at the stop sign and hit me. I don't want to raise my kids in Houston. And it took us about two years, um, two and a half years maybe, but we moved back up here to Lufkin, and uh, it was the, the, the best decision we made. Yeah. Shelley, I think, worked for Paul Yetter, who I've uh, had some cases with. He's yes. a great attorney, good guy, uh, good good gentleman. So, yeah. So I didn't know about Texas City, but I want to back up and talk about Seattle because you did spend some formative years up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Seattle. been there a couple of times, kind of like that area of the world. Uh, what, what what was your impression of it? What was it like growing up there for part of your, you know, teenage years? And, and what what do you think you learned from that, well, so to speak? For anyone who's been up there, it's a, it's a beautiful area. You know, snow skiing, water skiing, mountains, you know, lakes. It's just a, a very uh, beautiful area. You know, what's funny is my, uh, my opponent that we were talking about that kind of labeled me. She said, you know, no wonder you're, you're such a, a lover of Common Core and Cisco because you come from such a liberal um, state such as Washington. But, but honestly, back then, I wasn't involved in politics, and it was just a, a beautiful place to live with some, some uh, nice weather and, and, and pretty environment. So that, that's what I remember from those days. Yeah. We got back to Texas. Got born in Texas. Now I know that. And got back to Texas, I guess, as soon as you could. Right. Um, so you already talked about, um, you know, what caused you to want to run for SBOE and kind of how that went down. Um, but now that you're on SBOE, what did your time on the Lufkin School Board, how has that shaped you and, and what do you still take away from that time? You know, one of the, I was talking to one of the former commissioners of education who is, is kind of like would be similar to the superintendent of a local school board. It, it's, it's a little bit different. But he was telling me when he served as commissioner of education that his best state board members were former school board trustees. And we have board members who come from all different areas, some from the business world, some are educators, some are attorneys. We, we've got all different kinds. Um, but when you're on a, a local school board, you see things from a lot of different angles, and I think that's that's very beneficial. You see directly what students need in the classroom. You see very directly the challenges that, that the teachers have when they're working in this field. You see what the, what the administration goes through, and then you see what the community, um, you know, their aspect, whether it's a taxpayer or just a, a member of the community. And you almost kind of sit at a central point and see all these different areas coming through. And I think that really does help me when I serve on the state board is to understand all those different aspects of, of education. Yeah, and I want to, in a minute, we're going to get to your work on this this committee that looked at school finance, but it had to help there because you and I both know what it's like to try to balance a budget and try to um, make sure that we're giving teacher raises, that we're keeping up with technology, that we're maintaining buildings, and then one of the things that's not really thought of very much is, you know, you got to buy new buses every year because the old ones get worn out. And so buses, I, buses with seatbelts in them. Right, seatbelts now, yeah. at, at least for this uh, time being. You know, we now have 10 school uh, school buses with seatbelts, so they've all come in and they're, they're on the routes now, so we'll... We'll see how that works. Um, so what's the purpose of the State Board of Education? Because I, I, I don't think many people even really know what its main function is. 
is. Yeah, when I go around and talk, I was a group in, in, with, in Longview just the other night, and so I've got my little speech I give, and, and that's what I say is that if you want to stump someone at a dinner party, ask them what the State Board of Education does, and I think you're going to do a pretty good job um, stumping them. You know, I always joke about what it's, what it's not. Um, I say that being on the State Board of Education is not a high-paying job. Um, it's not even a low-paying job. In fact, it, it's, it's all volunteer work, but that's okay. Um, State Board of Education meets five times a year in Austin. We meet for four or five days each time. And um, there's kind of three pillars of, of things that we work on. We have a laundry list of about 35 different duties given to us by the legislature. But there's three main things that we work on. We have a good board in place right now. There's 10 Republicans and five Democrats. Um, we're chaired on the state board by a, a lady named Donna Behorch, who has been here in the district before. She came and visited us here. Um, the chair of the state board is appointed by the governor. But like I said, I really think we're doing good news right now. I can, I can say that by the, a lot of the um, newspapers in, in Austin are not happy with us because we're not making a lot of headlines right now. Um, we're, not, we're, not, we're not giving them many clicks right now because we're really just, just doing the work that needs to be done. But the three main pillars that we focus on our uh, number one is we manage the permanent school fund. Um, the permanent school fund is a f currently a little over $40 billion trust fund that started back in the 1850s. And its design is to help fund education in Texas. It recently passed Harvard as the number one education trust in the entire United States. So it's a huge fund that we pull out a little bit of money every other year when the legislature meets um, to help fund education in Texas. Um, the second thing that we do is the curriculum standards, and, and all my educators that I talk to understand the difference between a curriculum and curriculum standards, um, so I can quickly explain the difference. The curriculum standards is what we focus on, and if you, it's essentially what every student learns in each grade in every subject, with the idea that a third grader in Lufkin is going to learn the same thing in math class if he moves to El Paso or to Houston or to San Antonio. It's a uniform system that they're all learning the same things. It's very much an outline approach, um, just the basics of what needed to, needs to be learned, and I call it the skeleton of what all the kids need to learn. From there, the district is going to take a curriculum and put it on top of that, and the curriculum is essentially the flesh and the skin and the blood that goes on top of the curriculum standards. So we set those curriculum standards. And then the third thing is we, improve, we approve the instructional material, or the, what used to be called the textbooks, because some of it's digital now. We call it instructional material. So a publisher is going to write a textbook for uh, the uh, standards, and we approve or, or reject those, those textbooks or instructional materials. So when you approve those, does that give the school districts then multiple options to choose from, or you just approve one? Multiple. Now, there are times when only one or two publishers may submit in a uh, in kind of a, a, a not as uh, uh, popular course. Um, like, for example, we just had a Mexican-American studies uh, course that we approved. There was only one book that was submitted for that. Now, your English and your math are going to have multiple. 20, 25 different publishers are going to submit. And... Um, Basically, the, the permanent school fund that I mentioned, the funds that come out of that pay for the textbooks. So local districts don't have to go dip into their own pocket to pay for textbooks. If they prove an adopted, if they choose an adopted book, then it comes from the state coffers to help, help pay for that. Sure, sure. Um, well, and I do, I do remember from this last year, there were some discussions on that very textbook that you mentioned, the Mexican-American Studies 
then you had there was discussions. There's always discussions, and they seem like they're minute on, you know, why does this book have this sentence in it, or why does it have that sentence? So that's that's the thing that seemed to the only thing they seemed to be able to make the news on with you guys this year was those kind of things. Right, and you know that specific one. I do remember some of the controversies. Was was the book that was offered was not a good book. Um, it's you know this is a book on Mexican American studies and called Mexicans Lazy. The book actually called them lazy, and uh, and and that was just a, a starting point. So we got um, beat up and said, "Why did why is the state board of education even considering this book?" But they have to understand that we're the gatekeepers. That's our job. If we don't consider this book, and in this case, reject the book as we did, um, then who's going to? So there are times when uh, controversy gets created around us, and it's often uh, not our doings, but just the, the job that we have to do. The other thing along those lines, there's lots of advocacy groups in Austin um, on all sides, on both sides for sure, and those advocacy, advocacy groups um, make their income or their membership, and their membership drives based on controversy. If things aren't controversial, then no one's interested in joining one of their groups. So I, I do believe that sometimes they really work to create controversy when controversy is not there just so that they can uh, drive up their membership. Yeah, drive their giving campaign with sure. some uh, soundbite that they they make up. I understand. So um, so how long have you been on the SBOE now? So I just finished my second year. So it's a four-year term, and I'm halfway through that first term. So uh, I'm ready to start year three. But you all meet every year throughout the year as opposed to the legislature that meets just every other year. Right. right. Legislature meets every other year for six months solid straight and, and that would be a tough uh, tough deal for me to do with my practice but the state board of education something that's a little more reasonable because we just meet five times a year for it's either three or four or five days each time based on the the agenda that we have. Yeah so w- what is your takeaway from just the SBOE experience over the course of two years, you've probably got a pretty good idea how it works now and what's going on. So give the give our listeners uh, and, and the, a kind of a taste of what you think you know you've learned about that. Well, a little bit is just talking about education in Texas, and I think Texas really has some things to be proud of. And Texas public schools oftentimes get criticized, but I really feel they're doing good work. Some of the things you don't hear about is that Texas actually has a fourth highest graduation rate in the United States. There's a uh, test that gets given called the NAEP, um, and we get the NAEP scores. That's essentially the, the nation's report card. When you look at that and you look at the results of Texas kids, our white kids are outperforming the national average of other white kids. Our African-American kids are outperforming the national average of other African-American kids, and the same thing with our Hispanic kids. Uh, When you look at those NAEP scores on fourth grade math, African-American kids in Texas have the highest scores in the nation. Hispanics are third and our our white kids are fourth. When you adjust that for demographics, when you look at uh, um, poverty and and such, Texas is number two in the nation on NAEP scores. Um, And we do that with being ranked 43rd in the nation in student funding. Um, but when you don't adjust for demographics, the numbers aren't as encouraging, and that's a challenge that we have. You can adjust for demographics, demographics and say, okay, with what we're given, we're doing pretty well with, but employers don't look at that. They want right. to know what a kid knows, and so that's why we continue to have to work well. Um, 
And those are some of the challenges we have. When you look at Texas graduates and you pick a certain class, this was done not too long ago, and you look at them six years out, we still have 200,000 kids a class that don't have a college and college degree six years after that. There's studies that show that uh, someone who earns a college degree is going to make a million dollars more in their career than they would if they don't. So if you take 200,000 students and multiply that by a million dollars per student that they're missing out on, that's over 200 billion lost dollars per year. And the state needs that. We've, we've got, we need graduates who are prepared to be the engaged citizens. We need them to be and be productive. Um, Texas is growing at 360,000 new jobs a year. Um, we're having to import those workers in as now um, from other parts of the country, and we've really got to do what we need to do to make sure that Texas is producing the kids to, to be here. So I've got two questions. Um, it's, it's my opinion, and I've formed it over you know about seven years on the school board, that the, the key indicator of success is, you know, if you just in broad generalities is the poverty issue. You know, unfortunately, poor kids, regardless of race or culture, do worse than kids of better means. Do you, you kind of agree that that's the, the, one of the driving forces is poverty? Yeah, I think that's uncontroversial. The fact that, you know, at-risk kids or kids of poverty is the, is the toughest group to educate with that. Um, and that's actually how we measure it. The, the, the school finance formula says that, that at-risk kids will receive additional funding. And so how do we define at-risk? And the state has used a proxy of that by looking at free and reduced lunch. And if you meet the criteria for free or reduced lunch, you're considered a, a child living in poverty, and there's extra funding that, that's given for that. Um, one of the things we're focusing on is that that measure of free and reduced lunch is probably not the best metric to do that. Um, for example, it underrepresents high school kids. High school kids don't want to turn in that form. Right. Um, it's embarrassing for them to have to go turn that in. It may get uh, you know sent back with an elementary school kid, but we're probably under-identifying our children of poverty by using that. Um, the idea is that the, the census tracts have these details. Our, our Census Bureau knows exactly where the poverty levels all the way down to a block level. And, you know, one thing we've talked about is looking at that metric. But there's no doubt, you know, we, we, we look at African-American test scores for males and African-American scores for females and Hispanic, males, females, back and forth. And to me, it doesn't matter what gender they are or what that child looks like. That's inconsequential. Tell me where that child came from. And that's where the challenge is going to come when you're dealing with children in poverty. And that's a lot of what we see here in East Texas. Right. Um, we have a large amount of children living in poverty. And, and so that's uh, some of the issues we have. You know, the, the, the opponents of public ed will, will say that public schools are not doing a great job educating our students. And they'll, they'll point to some factors. And they'll say that these schools are failing their students. And I think what we really have is, is areas of struggling, I won't say failing communities, but definitely struggling communities. And when you have that, those are the kids who are going to show up at the school's doorstep. And there's all kinds of challenges in educating those kids. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Um, I, I believe that the poverty issue is, is the one that, that is the deciding factor of, of you know, how well a kid's going to do, especially early on in their career. You know, after the schools have them for a while, you know, we can, we can 
bring them up. But yeah. then, I think the other thing along those lines, I'd say number two, is whether they're an English language learner. Um, and we have a pretty high population of that in the area, too. And those are defined of just basically kids who don't speak English or English isn't spoken at home. And that's the same thing as once you have them in the district for a while, you're able to work with them and get them up. But, but there's some challenges there. Yeah, that's why I wish we weren't, they didn't even look at us until about the eighth grade when we had had them for seven or eight years or more. Um, but then the other thing I want to talk about is, you know, I, I've heard these statistics all my life about the fact that, um, you know, a college education is going to provide you a greater income over your lifetime. But if you look at the trends, especially males are not going to college at the rate they used to. And there's this whole idea that, that maybe not everybody should go to, to college. And Mike Rowe, um, you know, he's was on the deadliest catch. He was the voiceover and does a lot of great things. And I'm an admirer of his, but he's one of these people that's really pushing this idea that, you know, a trade may be just as good, if not better. So do y'all talk about those things, that trend at, at your level at the SBOE? Yeah, yeah quite a bit. And, and a lot of those other classes you're talking about are going to fall under what we call CTE or career technical education. And, uh, and this is exactly right. I think the, the state made a little bit of a mistake in times past when they had the old 4 by 4 system, which was designed to get every student in Texas ready for college. And we quickly learned that every student is not, does not need or should go to college. I think it was a 2013 legislative session when they came out with House Bill 5, and that's the one that had all the different graduation tracks. If you want to be on a college preparatory class, we've got that for you. But if you're also going to look for you know, another occupation, whether that's in the medical field or whether that's in welding or whatever the case is, that that's there for you. And there's, you know, in fact, one of the, the outcome measurements we look at when we get to the School Finance Commission is we look at CCMR, and that stands for College career or military readiness. Um, if you're one who's shooting for college, we need to be able to, uh, to work with that kid and make sure that their, their test scores and the curriculum is where they need to be to, to be successful. But we also look at, at career ready. And so there's an entire list of industry certifications, whether that's in welding or phlebotomy or cosmetology or whatever the case is. There are a lot of different fields, especially right now in this economy. Right. Um, where kids are leaving high school and can go, if they can weld, they can go make almost six figures um, as soon as they get out in the oil field. Right. Um, but they've got to have that skill to be able to do that. And then one other thing in that area that we've got to make sure that we don't overlook is military. Um, we need to reward our districts who get their kids military ready. So it used to be kind of college and career, and now we look at it at college, career, or military ready. Is there a different standard for being military ready? Yeah, there's a, a test that you have to, to pass to enter that called the ASVAB test. And so we, we look at whether the, the kid can pass the ASVAB test. But what's interesting about being military ready, it's the only component of all the different areas I, I mentioned that has a physical component to it. I don't know uh -huh. the exact standard, but for essentially you have to be able to run a mile at a certain pace or a mile and a half or whatever it is. Um, so there's physical fitness that's involved with it, and then they also judge your, your moral turpitude with that, yeah. which is not measured in any of the other areas with that. So you got to be pretty smart, you got to be in good shape, and you got to keep your nose clean. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's not easy to do with, with uh, Yeah, sometimes kids mess up, but, you know, that ought to be our goal with all kids that, that they can meet those qualifications, whether they're going in the military or not. Well, you know, um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is your work on 
this committee that you just got finished with or task force. I'm going to let you define it. But tell the listeners uh, about what what the name of it was and what it was tasked to do. Yeah, so let's go backwards about two years in the last legislative session. Um, there were a couple issues that were front and center. One of them were vouchers, which I'll talk about in just a second. But when the session started, you had Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, who's, who's a presiding officer of the Senate, who told everyone that school finance without school choice or vouchers um, are tied together. If we don't get vouchers, we're not giving any more money for school finance. A week or two later, you had on the House side, you had Dan Huberty, who is the uh, chairman of public ed, in an interview that said vouchers are dead on arrival in the House. That's how we started last session, and it got worse from there. It actually started bad and, and went downhill. Um, so by the end of the session, surprisingly, nothing was, was done. And so the Senate came forward and said, we need to really study this. We need to come up with a commission to spend the interim in between last session and this session studying school finance. The House actually didn't want to do that. And they said, we've studied it long enough. It's time to take action. Well, long story short, the Senate won, and uh, there was a commission formed, the Texas Public School Finance Commission. Um, it, we began in January of 2018, and it was made up of four members that were appointed by the lieutenant governor, including Senator Larry Taylor, who's chair of the Education Committee, along with uh, Senators uh, West and Senator Betancourt. There were four members who were appointed by the, by the Speaker of the House, including Representative Dan Huberty, who I just mentioned, who's chair of public ed, as, long as, as well as Representative Diego Bernal and Representative Ken King. There were four members appointed by the governor, including the uh, chairman of our committee, former Texas Supreme Court Justice Scott Brister, and the State Board of Education chair also got to appoint one member, and I was honored that she appointed me to serve in that, in that uh, capacity. So there are 13 members, six were legislators, six were non-legislators, and we met a whole lot of times in 2018. As I mentioned earlier, I go to Austin typically five times a year for the State Board of Education. I went back and looked at my calendar. I was in Austin 25 times last year. So a little too many times, um, but we really took a deep dive into school finance. Um, when you imagine the legislatures trying, legislators trying to do this in a session when they got everything else to do, you can understand how challenging it is because we spent an entire year putting together a commission report. And, you know, they talk about school finance being um, the joke around Austin is there's only five people who really understand school finance in Texas. And I kind of disagree with that. You know, we, we all took a deep dive on it. And I would say that each of us pretty well understand school finance in Texas. I think what you could truly say is that school finance in Texas is not intuitive. It doesn't make sense. There's things in there that certain districts get transportation funding and certain districts don't. Um, there's certain types of funding from the from the available school fund that some districts get and some districts don't. There's a uh, districts that pay recapture. If they have an early agreement, if they basically say, we're going to go ahead and pay that, which they're required to do, they get a 4% uh, increase in what, or a knockoff of what they have to pay. For some districts, that comes out to about $20 million for just saying, we're going to pay what we have to pay. So there's a lot of things that just didn't make sense. And so those are some of the things we wanted to make sure that, that we work to, to improve with that. Um, but the, some of the biggest challenges we had on school finance is the fact that there were some really, really outdated formulas. 
Um, we have a cost of education index, which is a, a weighting system that, that some areas may cost more to educate kids than others. Well, those numbers were, were done and have not been updated since the late 1980s when the city of Frisco had literally one stoplight. It's a little different now in Frisco these days. Um, we have a transportation allotment that was uh, defined and still under the same terms when diesel was 57 cents a gallon. So there's a lot of outdated formulas that, that really need to be, be worked on. So those are some of the things that we, that we yeah. focused on. So, so how do you, you know, one of the things they say, if you have to eat an elephant, you, the only way to do it is like one bite at a time. And school finance is a bit of a, an elephant uh, in a lot of ways. So how do you start and then what's the progression and then what was the end result? Yeah, so I think in, in a normal term, that's correct. In a normal session, legislative session, you almost kind of have to do that. I think that was the benefit of doing it the way we did it, spending an entire year studying it. Because everything, it's like a, like a grandfather clock. It's a, it's a pretty high-tech piece of machinery. When you've got one knob over here affecting something else, they all work together. So the benefit was we were able to really look at it in its entirety and, and take all the, the pieces together. So you talk about where we started at. You know, Our very first meeting, we actually had some testimony that basically said money doesn't matter in education. If you would just spend the money you have better if you would just spend the money you have wiser, then we would be okay. And uh, we really pushed back on that. I mean, there's not another entity, business entity out there that, that money doesn't matter. And they said, well, by just pouring more, more money in the system doesn't mean you're going to get better outcomes. And the comment was, well, that's never been tried before. Why don't we try that first to see if it, if it works? Um, but that's kind of where we started at. And we really made some significant changes along the way in I mean, really from A to Z and head to toe on the school finance side of that. Some of the, the changes that we made, we talked about children of poverty. In the school finance uh, system, we call that comp ed students. Those right. are children who are in poverty. Um, we talked about changing it from free and reduced lunch to a census block. But right now, if you're a child of poverty, you get a 20% increase in your school funding. Well, one thing we did is we changed, we, we increased that to about 22.5% to 27.5%. But we also did something unique in that we increased the basis on concentration of poverty. So if you have one kid in a classroom, that's different if, if that falls under poverty and you have an entire classroom. Let's give more money to that entire classroom of kids, not just the, the single student there. Um, one thing that Lufkin's always done that I think is extremely important in their English language population is had a dual language program of an outstanding program. Well, the states looked at the data and it says when you're educating English language learners, dual language is the way to go. It's the only program that gets them above the, the passing standard and keeps them there. All the other ones have short-term success and then the, it kind of falls off. So we said we're going to incentivize. You know, If you're going to educate an English language learner, you get a 10% increase. But if you do it with dual language, you get a 15% increase. So kind of guiding me in the programs that work. Um, we gave a dyslexia allotment. Districts have always had to educate students of dyslexia, but there's been never any funding for it. We put in the formulas for the first time a, a dys dyslexia allotment. Um, another thing that I really brag on Lufkin a lot is their, their pre-K, the right. focus they have on pre-K. I was going to mention that if you didn't. Yeah, so, so Lufkin identified that years ago, I want to say 10 or plus years ago, and have paid for that out of their own pocket because they've seen the value of it. When you have kindergartners who come behind, starting behind, 
there's a lot of studies that show that they don't catch up. So you take your, your at-risk students and you give them that extra year and the results really pay for themselves. We, for the first time, um, have put in, in the formulas full day pre-K that's actually in the formulas. It came in a couple years ago. They did it as a grant. So they gave it to you for two years and then they pulled the rug out from underneath you. So we're not only did we put it in the formulas where it stays, we went from a half day um, to a full day. So that's an important thing. Essentially, you know, summarizing those last two things, you always hear about these unfunded mandates. So right. one thing we did is started funding the things that we've had as an unfunded mandate. Um, another area that we worked on the commission was uh, increasing the base allotment. That's just what the base level of every kid gets. And right now it's about $5,100 per student. Um, our, we, the number's not been, been vetted out completely, but I think that number's going to get pretty close to $6,000 per student, which is significant. And that's right. real money. Um, we talked about career and technical education and how important that is. Well, right now the state only pays for that if it happens in high school. So we've proposed that you actually pay for career and technical education in middle school, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Right. Let's start those programs a little bit earlier. Um, another interesting thing is of the commission members, there were 13 of us, only two of us were from rural areas, myself and Ken King, who's from the Panhandle of Texas. All the 11 other members were either from Houston or Dallas or Austin or San Antonio. So the story I'm going to give here was when we talked about transportation, they said, well, it's a complicated formula, so why don't we just give every district a flat amount per kid for transportation and let the district figure that out? Well, thankfully, I was able to push back on that as one of the two rural members and said, you know, if you live in Katy or Cyfair or Humble, um, that bus is going to leave its bus barn and drive down to a, a subdivision mm -hmm. with nice concrete roads and in a mile or two have a bus full of kids and they're going to turn around and drop them off at the schoolhouse and it's pretty simple and easy. Well, let's talk about transportation in Lufkin where that bus is going to leave the bus barn on a concrete road and turn into an asphalt road pretty quick and then turn into a gravel road and then into a, a dirt road to go pick up a kid, right. and then they're going to have to turn around and go chase down another kid somewhere else. So to say you're going to give just an equal number of dollars to per kid for transportation funding really didn't make sense, and I was able to push back on that, and thankfully they dropped that and went to a mileage base. They're going to fund transportation based on how many miles um, a district has to go to go get those those kids. So those are some of the things um, that we focused on. There's a few controversial things um, that, that I don't mind talking about either if you want to go into it. Um, about outcomes and teachers pay too that we, we we got into. Yeah, briefly tell us about those those couple of things because you and I have had conversations with them and and frankly I'm concerned about how they're going to work and I know they haven't been fleshed out yet so kind of kind of just lay a little bit of an intro to those. Yeah, so things are going to change a lot and and I think it's time to to sit back and watch and and we joke about the commission. You know, essentially, and, and you, you want to talk about how political this was. We had a very similar commission that was formed nine years ago. And this commission met, that commission met the entire time that we did all year long, and they got to right at the finish line, and they basically blinked, stepped away from the, the cliff, and didn't even write a report um, because it got very political with them. So one of the nice things that we did that I was proud of is we voted unanimous on this commission, 13-0 to pass the report, but all we've done is, is run the football to the 50-yard line. 
there's still the other 50 yards that needs to go, but we've essentially handed the ball off to the legislature, and now they've got to go the, the rest of the way with that. And that's where some of these issues you talked about being fleshed out are going to come about. But one of the big ones is teacher pay, and, and there's different ways to go about that. One is to say, okay, we just need to give all teachers raises because they're underpaid, and I fully agree with that. And there's another viewpoint that says that you've got to pay your best teachers more to incentivize them um, to be there. And again, my, my answer to that is both. There's ways to incentivize teachers to stay in the profession. You're, you're, you're all-star and you're rock-star teachers, but you've got to get the base level up to a good level to get people to want to come into the profession as there is. So what this particular proposal talks about is the Dallas method. Uh, in Dallas ISD, what they do is they identify their strongest teacher. They have a method to do that. And then they pay them significantly more dollars. And we're not talking $1,000 or $2,000, but we're talking twelve dollars to $15,000 a year to move their, their best teachers to their most struggling campuses. Now, the results that they've had up there in Dallas are undeniable. They had Dallas four years ago had 40 different campuses that were improvement required, and they're down to three. And they've done some other things besides this, um, but that's one of the biggest things that they did. But the proposal that we're doing is not to do what Dallas did. Dallas did what fit for their district. And I had a conversation with some people from Dallas. We talked about this recommendation. And I said, the problem with this is this looks very Dallas-centric. What works in Dallas is not going to work in Lufkin or Nacogdoches or, <clears throat> or other areas. So one of the, the key issues is to make sure that it's locally driven. So the impetus behind this particular proposal is, number one, you identify your best teachers by whatever metric you think that that's most appropriate, whether that's looking at test scores, whether it's looking at evaluations, whether there, there's a variety of different methods, you essentially figure out who your best teachers are. And the state will pay you a bonus to put those best teachers in front of your neediest kids. So that's where this specific proposal is going to come from. You know, you and I, Scott, we, we've talked about some of our best teachers that we have. We, we can walk into Lufkin High School and, and most parents and students know who those best teachers are. And there's, there's one or two that I can think of in particular. What, what can we do to make sure that we retain these teachers? And in the system we have, there, there's really not a way. We can't pay teacher A more than teacher B right. um, outside of that area. So this is a way to let your all-star teachers, your true rock star teachers, literally make up to six figures, $100,000 a year. Because um, how do they do that now? How does a teacher make $100,000? They've got to leave the classroom. Right. <laughs> Either be a football coach or you get into administration. And the, and the further they get away from the classroom, the more it will pay them. So the goal is how can we pay them more to, to make those kinds of dollars to incentivize them to stay, yet keep them inside the classroom? Well, and another thing we both know is we're not creating enough teachers at the college level to replace the ones that are retiring. And we're going to have a shortage. So if we don't incentivize the base pay as well, we're not going to get people who want to enter the profession. And then, like you said, the really great ones, we need to, we need to keep them all, but the, we need to incentivize great teachers to stay with us. Yeah, it's definitely going to, one more point on that that comment right there. It's, it's going to be interesting to watch this come out. The Senate has already said that, that they're going to propose a, a $5,000 teacher increase um, for every, every full-time position, teacher position. The problem is that they've only written the statute for two years. So if the next legislator comes along, does the district raise that run $5,000 and have to pull that out from them? Um, the, the, the House Speaker just last 
Thursday or maybe it was even on Friday, said that he wasn't necessarily on board with this this method that I talked about with the outcome-based pay. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see where this, this lands. Well, one of the topics that I wanted to mention is something interesting, in my opinion, happened uh, during the interim between legislative sessions at the same, you know, the same time your committee was working. We had an election, you know, a, 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 what they call a midterm, I guess, but for House members, it's, it's not a mid, mid, midterm, it's a, it's a term. Um, and I think the results <coughs> are in show that maybe teachers are beginning to drive some of the talk with the way they vote. Is, is that being mentioned in Austin and around the folks that you're, you're involved with in the education world at the SBOE and the, on, this, uh, on this, this task force committee? I'd say without a doubt. Um, the story I told about the 2017 uh, session started all about vouchers and it ended with vouchers. We met for 12 months, I think 25 different meetings um, on the School Finance Commission, over 100 different hours of testimony, and I bet you we had less than two minutes of discussion on vouchers. Um, that tells me something right there. Um, when you look at the election that happened back in November, and then you look at the, uh, the, the narrowness of the results, when you dig into the numbers, rural Texas, whether it's rural East Texas or rural West Texas, essentially save the Republicans. Um, I think we would have Democrat statewide elected officials right now if it wasn't for rural Texas. Well, guess what rural Texas is really proud of and really appreciates, and that's the public education system. So I think the statewide elected leaders had saw that without a doubt. Um, that's why, you you know, there, there's some issues that need to go into that teacher pay there, but it's a pretty good start to say that we're going to give every teacher $5,000 across the, the board pay raise. When you look at the House side, um, and let me put this in a little bit of context, we had the huge cuts back in 2011 right. of, of $5 billion in public education. Um, throughout this commission, I think there's some who thought if we could get three or four of that billion back or maybe $5 billion, that would be incredible. The budget that came out on the House side, their base budget, just their starting point, had $9 billion in it for education. Now, some of that was for tax cuts because they're going to work together, but at a minimum, $7 billion into public education. Those are jaw-dropping numbers um, that, we're, that we're proposing to put back in public education. And I don't think you see those numbers without the election results you had back in November. Yeah, so teachers, if you're listening... Your vote does matter, and the more you vote on education issues, the better it's going to be for you and public education. So that's my editorial at this point. Um, all right, so the committee, the committee did its report. You, you, were, you were, had a year to do it. You did it, voted on it unanimously. Um, you've handed it off to the legislature, which started a couple of weeks ago. Um, what do you want the legislature to do? I mean, what you, if you were king for the day, what would you? What's the outcome you want? So one thing I've talked about: we have over thirty different recommendations. I highlighted a couple of them, but there was even more than that. And the, our proposal was built together like a, a puzzle, and they really need all the pieces to fit together to work well. So I've talked to other school districts and to, to school personnel and to school board members. And I think one of the key things is that the education community all keeps, A, rowing in the same direction, and the other little phrase I use is make sure you keep the same color jersey on. There's those who oppose public education who will typically try to um, divide 
educators. And they do that by the school finance system. Well, let's give this district this much money and this district that much. Well, that puts them at odds. And you could also even talk about that with the accountability system. When you want to rate one school versus the other, well, then it becomes a very competitive system. So the longer that that the education community can keep the same colored jersey on, I think that's going to be useful. And the reason I'm saying that is this proposal, let's just say there's 30 different pieces of that, there's Lufkin ISD could probably look at that and find, well, one or two of these things really don't suit us well. Let's take those out. And uh, Houston ISD could probably do the same thing. And, and El Paso ISD could probably do the same thing. And pretty soon you can nitpick the whole thing to, to death and have nothing left. But they all fit together. And when you look at the entirety, what I've asked educators to do and say, don't look at this plan as in, does this plan help me? Does it help my district? Look at it and say, does this plan help education in the state of Texas? And if it does, I'd ask you to support it, even though it may not be the, each individual piece may not be the most ideal thing for your district. Um, when we put it all together, that's when we want to see what it does for education. So put on your Old Testament prophet hat and tell me uh, when Sinai comes in June, what do you think the results are? Well, I'm more optimistic, and I think everybody is right now, um, than we would have been even a couple months ago, maybe before the, the election. You won't hear many words coming out of Austin in the last two or three weeks that don't include the word school finance right now. That is all they are talking about, and that's a little bit unprecedented. Unprecedented in the fact that the Senate and the House and the governor are all holding hands and, and kumbaya and and everybody's you know, in the same, uh, moving in the same direction. Speaker of the House just uh, put out uh, in the speakers, or in the, uh, the House members' lounge, styrofoam cups that say school finance, the time is now. I have never seen more of a singular focus on one aspect like school finance is right now. Um, the Senate just put forth their committee assignments on Friday. So we had Senators Larry Taylor and Representative Dan Heberty on the commission who you know, I would say of all the members, when we got done with our report, their uniforms were the dirtiest. They were, they were, they were full of blood, sweat, and tears. They really put their heart and soul in this commission. You never know who's going to be in leadership next session. Senator Taylor um, has been appointed to the Education Committee in the Senate, and um, I believe from what the tea leaves show that Representative Huberty will be appointed to public in the House. I think if that happens, that's going to be critical for this. Um, because, like I said, they're both highly invested in this, and I think that they will continue to push this. There's going to be some changes to it. There might be, you know, we talked about the, um, the teacher pay raise. There's also some uh, parts in there about third-grade reading scores on school funding. There's some things that may get tweaked, and um, just like they always do within the legislative session. Um, but I'm really hopeful that at sine die, when we get to the end of the session, that, A, you're going to see significant new dollars into public education, and I think we're heading that way right now, and that the school finance proposal goes through with, at, at, at a minimum, some or at the most, um, a few tweaks along the way, because I think even our commissioner of education was talking about this at a meeting I heard just a few weeks ago, and he was talking about the commission's recommendations. He said, this is not nibbling around the edge stuff. These are significant, meaningful changes, and if we can get that to the finish line, I'm optimistic that we can. Um, you're going to see public education in Texas better than it was prior to this. What I think is interesting, this will be the first time, at least in my adult memory, that the legislature is going to do something without a court order. Because normally the Supreme Court of Texas has been the one to force them to do that. In the last case uh, that went up to the Supreme Court, it didn't. And
and I'm going to reiterate what I said. It's uh, to me, it, it's the work that you guys did, but it's also I think uh, the electorate out there is ready for this to happen, especially our public school teachers and the folks in rural Texas who who know public education is so important. So what do you think the future of public education is? I mean, just in general. Well, you know, a lot of it's going to be on what we talked about. You know, public education doesn't just happen in a vacuum. You know, there, there's metrics that have to go into it. There, there's tools that have to be used. And you can talk about a lot of different things, but they all start with funding. So we've talked about that. But it's just like, you know, we talked a little bit about teachers. There's nothing more important in the education system than having a quality teacher in the classroom. So we've got to do some positive changes on that. You know, I'm thinking of a graph that I've seen in my mind that shows um, the, the most uh, number of years you'll see in a teacher, whether it's a one-year teacher or a five or ten or first-year teachers. That's our, our, the most teachers we have in the classroom. But the point is it basically drops off from there. We have less Teachers have two years of experience and less than have five. And so we're losing teachers as soon as we get them in the classroom. And so some of these funding mechanisms um, have to get there. It can go back to testing. Um, what do you hear from teachers? You know, that they, they're, they're, they're tired that they don't get to teach for the reason that they wanted to. And testing is a big part of that. So, you know, I unfortunately, through a lot of my time, when people come to me with concerns, say, well, that, that doesn't fall into my jurisdiction. I can't really help you there. And testing kind of is that same way, except for one part. You know, we, we going back to the beginning, we talked about our curriculum standards. Our curriculum standards are what the tests are based on. Um, if I heard one thing, and it started with local superintendents when I decided to run it, I heard it from all the way across, is that we had to streamline our TEKS. They're bloated. There's too much material in our standards for a teacher to teach in a school year. Um, what they essentially have to do, because they're going to be tested at the end of the year, they have to run through them as fast as they can so they can get them all tested. And the phrase is, I hear it over and over, that our TEKS are a mile wide and an inch deep. So the thing that we that I can affect with that, and we've been focused on this, is streamlining our TEKS, taking our extra TEKS out and narrowing it down so that teachers can really delve into the important areas and spend time teaching and not just running through because some certain question might be on, on the test score. A um, little side story, about four years ago, the legislature passed a bill for us to streamline the TEKS. It was passed by the House and Senate, but actually vetoed by the governor for, for a whole different reason. But the state board took that to task. We have stream. We just redid our entire English language arts with a is a full revision, but we streamlined them in mind. Um, we did our science, um, did a streamlined revision there, and uh, the the story I talk about the state board of education being a good position. I went back on some news articles and looked. The last time the state board of education did science, which can be pretty controversial when you have science, you're teaching biology, and when you teach biology, there's just some controversial issues that come up. Last time they did it, I saw a picture of our, our building where we meet at, and there were nine different news trucks, like the big satellite trucks outside. We did the same thing here recently, did the full uh, streamlined revision. We got done. I walked out to our uh, lobby. There was one TV camera. No trucks, just one camera out there. So I think we're, we're doing things the right way. Right. We just finished social studies, and social studies was a chief offender. There were uh, 11th grade history, 8th grade history, and, and U.S. history. When you look at student expectations, the number of things they have to learn, those had, and I'm going to have my numbers off a little bit, but basically 130 expectations, 125, and like 110. The fourth most busiest subject was third grade English, which had 64. 
So fourth place was 64, and these had 130 and 120. There were absolutely too many. So we just finished that up in November is streamlining um, those Teagues. And we had some controversial things. The defenders of the Alamo came up with that, Hillary Clinton, a few other things. But, uh, right. yeah, we made it through. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because um, you and I both know that uh, from our training back in your school board days and, and I continue there, is that uh, if you've got a room full of people or the news media is there, you probably are not doing it right. Right. <laughs> you know, Mr. Knight, when I first got on the Lufkin School Board, I was a little bit disappointed. I said, Mr. Knight, I said, this is sad. You know, we're doing all this work on the school board. We're doing these great things. And we look out in the audience and there's nobody out there. And he said, Kevin, trust me. He said, that's a good thing. Yeah. He said, the community trusts you. When this boardroom is full, you've lost your trust in that community. And that's, that's pretty important. There. That's right. That's right. And I think you and I talked about uh, television cameras at one time, you know, uh, 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 filming the board sessions. And then we went to training and saw some disasters that that <laughs> caused. And we, we, we decided not to do that. Well, you know, our State Board of Education meetings are obviously live streamed. So you are a little bit uh, cognizant of everything you say is being filmed and can and will be used against you. Yeah. Even by your friends at, right. uh, at Lions Club. Yeah, I do have a particular friend. I need to get back on that. Yeah. That. So what's uh, next for you? you get, uh, you've decided whether you're going to run for SBOE again. What, what do you think? Well, I've got two more years to serve. That's one of the nice things about State Board of Education uh, as opposed to a House member. They've got, they're continually running. They're in two-year cycles. So as soon as they get elected, they start on their next campaign cycle. Um, a four-year term gives you a little break in between. And so I'm just halfway through. Um, so the... Uh, my next election will be in 2020, and I'm enjoying my time on the board so far. I don't see any reason why I wouldn't yeah. um, run again, but that's a little bit down the road. Right. All right, so you, you've been on this committee. You went to Austin 25-plus uh, times for the year. Now that you're not going to have that on your back, uh, what are you going to do with your free time? <laughs> well, I always joke that you know this work is my volunteer work. My wife appreciates if I uh, stay at my paying job a little bit more. Right. So, so number one, uh, stay at my paying job a, a little bit more. But also the fact that I have finished the commission, but this has still got the rest of the way through the legislature. So I've already been asked a couple times to, to come out and testify to some of the committees and so forth. So um, definitely have a vested interest in this and, right. and might want to watch it for the next six months as it goes through the, the legislative process. I understand. It's kind of the, the baby that you guys have birthed, and now you want to see if it grows up. See it grow up, exactly yeah. right. Well, hey, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Thanks for all the information. Thanks for your time. And, uh, you know, I'll get to see you around, but uh, but thanks for all your hard work. I know, I know that sometimes you get uh, a lot more complaints than you get praise, but, but thanks for the hard work over there, and we appreciate having you today. Well, I appreciate it, and, you know, and, and I started here on the Lufkin board with you and realized that as much as we do in Austin, where the boots meet the ground are here in the local district, and that's where um, y'all continue to keep doing the good work also. Well, thanks. All right, well, that, that'll wrap this up, and uh, we'll see you on the next podcast.